0: In the mid-1800s, mines were being opened all over the coal-rich hills of Pennsylvania. The demand for coal power from the East Coast was ever-growing. These mines built towns all through this coal region. Centralia, Pennsylvania was one such small town. Things had changed there in the hundred years since the first coal mine had opened. In the 1960s, there were about 1,200 people that lived there. They had shops and a good local economy and had left the rough past behind that was so common amongst small mining towns. Back then, the area was so rich in coal that some of the coal came near to the surface. Ironically, it was the city council that ended up making the decision that would cause the town of Centralia to become a ghost town. The city council proposed a cleanup of the town landfill in time for the Memorial Day festivities. Their method of cleaning up the landfill was to burn it in big piles of trash. Unknowingly, the landfill sat right on top of a coal seam that was connected to 25 million tons of underground coal. The fire spread into the ground, into the mine tunnels, and all through the city. In spite of their best efforts, the fire has never been extinguished. Over time, the temperatures of the ground grew. It started with abnormally warm winter temperatures, Residents didn't have to shovel their sidewalks. They were even able to grow tomatoes in the late winter. Then it killed the trees and the plant life. Smoke began seeping into basements and toxic fumes steamed out of the ground. The heat grew so intense, some parts of the town reached 900 degrees. That fire is still burning underground and will burn for the next 250 years. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world.
1: Well, that Centralia mine fire basically made the city of Centralia a ghost town, right? It went from over a thousand residents to a handful now living in that region today, almost swallowed up some of the citizens, you know, almost miraculously. Nobody's been killed by it that that we know of, at least. I guess if some hobo wandered in and (laughs) fell through a hole, we probably wouldn't be aware of it. So why do we tell that story at the beginning of this episode? Um, Well, last week we looked at one of the shanty towns that we're going to need to clear from our job site if we're going to put up this great cathedral of Christendom. And that shanty town last week that we covered was uh, revivalism and decisionism, this culture of revivalism and decisionism, particularly that grew up over the last 200 years or so out of the second great awakening, it's flourished in America and it has been highly informative of much of the megachurch culture, big, fast, and famous culture, much of the rot that has gone through uh, the, the remnants of the old Christendom. And so the, the picture in, in my mind, as I'm thinking about what's happened to Christianity over the last few centuries, is kind of like that Centralia mine fire. Because we had this great, glorious Western civilization that was really built by Christians doing Christian things, by Christians doing Christian things. Some of the greatest art, music, and civilization that's ever been produced in the history of mankind was produced by this old Christendom. But then, you know, many different seams of coal under the ground, it seems like, caught fire and slowly burned out the foundations underneath and and crumbled from the, from the ground down, really, that old Christendom. And so uh, today, as we... Think through our building project. We're not just asking where did revivalism and decisionism go wrong? But what we'd like to do now is, is sort of counterpoint that and say, well, contra revivalism and decisionism, what would we build? Let's say we've cleared that shanty town out of the way of revivalism and decisionism. What would we do differently today? What are we going to build in its place? And and so today we'll we'll organize this conversation around three fairly long-winded sentences because I wrote them, so they're fairly long. Do they have lots of commas? Just like fifteen or sixteen commas, okay. couple m dashes, semicolons, semicolons. Right. They're not that long. Act. They're not like Paul the Semi, apostle. Semicolon. Semicolons. Not semicolon. Semi hemi
0: demi quaver you know what? Read your (laughs) (laughs) sentence.
1: Okay. I'll read all three of them and then we'll back up and and go through each one of them and unpack it and talk it through. So the the first heading that we'll discuss today is that where revivalism and decisionism produce unstable and emotionalistic disciples, the new Christendom will be marked by men and women who are sober-minded and stable. So we're going to talk about some of the emotionalism of that model, why it needs to go and what, what ought to replace it. Number two, where revivalism and decisionism produce a culture of apocalyptic thinking and cultural decline, the new Christendom will be built on 40,000-year thinking and conquest thinking. And then finally, where revivalism and decisionism produce a culture of restorationism and novelty, the new Christendom will be marked by covenantal thinking and historically rooted catholicity and so we're going to talk about the emotionalism of revivalism and what should replace it we're going to talk about the apocalyptic uh, cultural decline narrative of revivalism and what ought to replace it and then we'll talk about the restorationism and, and novelty and what ought to replace it let's start with that heading concerning instability and emotionalism revivalism has tended to make an intense and emotional fervor, sort of the default vision for spiritual health, right? And we talked about this last week where the, the goals and the setting for much of the revivalism of the second great awakening was camp meetings or church meetings, community meetings that would be self-consciously aimed at whipping up the audience into a fervor, right? An emotional fervor uh, or an, you know, emotional anxiety, like deep wells of anxiety into which they would offer this decisionistic gospel presentation uh, as the answer. So maybe we should start with this question, guys. How, how has revivalism promoted emotional instability? Where have you seen this? And what has been the result of this? Maybe so that as we're, come, you know, we're, we're saying what we should build instead, we can kind of start with, with some of the bad things we don't want to see.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about this question reading through the New Testament particularly the pastoral epistles. And Paul actually talks a lot about this with Timothy, with a young man, you know, yeah. how to be stable. Um, you don't want to be shifting on sand. You don't want to be tossed to and fro by the waves. And one of the things that he always talks about is doctrine, mm. right? There's a doctrine that leads to godliness. Uh, there's a doctrine that produces, and the word Paul uses over and over in English, at least is soundness or health. Mm-hmm. And so for the young man, especially young men can be tumultuous, Right. Um, And a lot of young people tend to be given, I think, to the revivalism and the fervor of that. Um, Instead of that, we're really looking for doctrinal foundations. Um, So I think that's somewhere near the heart of the issue is being doctrinally rooted and grounded. Um, One of the things as I, in my own personal life, as I moved away from revivalism and sort of the emotionalistic experiences we talked about last week, it really was being, okay, now we're going to be more grounded in historical, reformed, Calvinistic thought, Mm. Um, it's less and less about your personal experience and then it's more and more about solid teaching. So Dan, I know you're a pastor. You do a lot of teaching in the church along with Brian. Um, would you agree with that? And have you seen that bear fruit in the life of the body as you you're leaning more into sound teaching?
0: I just want to say both of you sound really stodgy (laughs) and boring and dry. (laughs) What? Your long sentences with big words, man, snooze fest. I thought you were like a Twitter star. Don't you have to be like pithy and punchy? No, no, here. So the history actually, history is a, you got something you want to tell me? I, I do, Dan. Award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul. Yeah. May God have mercy on my soul. Actually. I think that's actually so, what you were
2: saying to us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, here's the thing. You're, you're right. Historic rootedness does provide like a ballast in a ship prevents yeah. it from swaying too much one direction or another. Yeah. Or like, uh, I, I, I've heard the illustration that this emotionalism produces men that are like drunk dudes riding a horse. Yeah. You know, they just like swing from one side to the Oof. next. But what it's done personally to me, and it's we'll talk about assurance, I'm sure, throughout this whole thing, assurance of salvation, you're standing in Christ, things like that, is that if, uh, growing up, I was instructed, you know, you're supposed to have these experiences. How are you feeling? How are you doing with your relationship with God? Expecting some sort of like miracle to happen. Yeah. When I sit down and read the Bible in the morning in my quiet time, I'm like, boy, I'm I'm in Leviticus in my Bible reading plan and I'm not feeling it this morning. What's wrong. I must not be right. Yeah. God, what is going on? What am I doing? Why are you far from me? I start sounding like David in one of the Psalms, you know, that's like, don't depart from me. I'm like, no dude, you're just, you need to tell your emotions, you know, to obey your knowledge and to obey your doctrine. You need to have your emotions bridled. And so what it really did to me, and I know what the fruit that is produced in in other people that I've pastored, is that the expectations aren't on the emotional experience. The expectations aren't on yourself. You're not self-focused when you're doing things like reading the scriptures because they're not primarily about you. You're not reading yourself into the story all the time, right? It's declaring God declaring in his word who he is and what he's like and what he's done and what he'll do and things like that. And so it's really given me a better grounding or a rootedness to provide stability. And I know, you know, like you said, it's done that for you as well. The historically rooted portion of it, I think is really important because when you, when you look with uh, humility at the past, assuming that, you know, people in the past weren't just dirt munchers, you know, that they actually built some of the most amazing buildings wrote some of the most amazing works of literature, um, performed some of the most beautiful music. You can look back at them. who have thought great thoughts that have been around for hundreds of years that have proven themselves. And you look to those men and think, okay, what great thoughts have these men thought? What did they think about the scriptures? What is my inheritance of the faith? What are my spiritual fathers and mothers thinking in the past? And have gotten produced the fruit that we've seen over a few hundred years. And that's why we're really skeptical, skeptical of anything that's modern is because the fruit is bad. And so that's what I would say as far as the sorts of changes that have happened to me personally and the teachings that have produced fruit in the church.
2: Yeah. I think one of the other things, Dan, is you were talking about that, that really came to mind, I was listening to a podcast the other day with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, we'll need some sound effects on that one, Brian. Wow. Absolutely, yeah.
0: This is me, Arnold Schwarzenegger.
2: i the Schwarzenegger. Were you
0: being serious? Did I, I, I literally was.
2: Arnold. It was actually really good. <laughs> uh,
0: so one of the things he talked about, the guy said. By the way, uh, why is it everybody can do an Arnold Schwarzenegger? Run!
2: Go! Get to the chopper!
0: impression but he can't say california california yeah it's weird anyway sorry continue
2: yeah that's a good question we'll have to uh see if we can reach out to him and uh, next episode next episode we will have him on Arnold, we'll get some sound design for that one (laughs) yeah there you go so yeah one of the things he was talking about though in the podcast was um the guy asked him he said you know i don't know how how old he is now he's 70s something like that he's getting up there but he's still working he's Mr. out universe. Yeah, he's still working so. out. Works out every day. And the guy asked him. He said, "Why do you work out every day?" And he said, "Because I did yesterday and the day before, and I did that every day for the last thirty years. That's what I do. That's my routine." And you'll hear this a lot in the fitness communities. Like a lot of young guys, a lot of guys who aren't trained, they want to rely on motivation. Am I motivated today to go to the gym? And the guys who are really good, they're at the top of their game physically they will all say, it's not about motivation. It's about discipline. It's about self-control. It doesn't matter if you feel like going to the gym.
0: It's almost like Neverland or like Peter Pan, like find your happy thought. Yeah. Just hold it, hold that happy thought in your mind. Yeah, that's right. And then you work. No, that's, no. that's not how it works.
2: And that's the reality. <laughs> um, we, we mentioned the book Desiring God, but you know, again, that, that focus on your religious experience being like kind of the grounding for how you're doing. And the reality is as, as we grow up and as we become men, I mean, what do I know I do to my boys? What do we say all the time? We say, you know, they say, but dad, I don't feel like it. And I look at them and I said, it absolutely doesn't matter. It's our duty and we're going to do it. Yeah, And we're going to pray for strength and we're going to do it again, back to this principle of maturity means discipline, not necessarily relying on how you feel in the moment.
1: Yeah. Revivalism has produced emotional instability in, in the sense that The the very environment and call to action that you're continually hearing is like, you know, get to the next level with God, recommit to God, get, you know, you're not zealous enough. I think this is even the great grandfather of things like radical David Platt and some of this stuff where it's like, you're the real Christians are, you know, overseas missionaries and they're continually like when they, when they worship God, they're raising their hands and they're swaying with the music because they're just overwhelmed with emotional response to God and spiritual fervor and all that sort of thing. But the, the reality is God hasn't actually made human beings to work like that, right? Like God hasn't actually made people to live there for very long. And, and even if you think about it, if you make that the standard, then you will be tempted to continually try to create that. Or if you can't create it and you know in the culture of whatever group of people you're in, if you're in group, your tribe is like, well, all of the, the greatest among us are, con- you know, they're continually weeping during worship or they're continually, you know, in their quiet time, they're having visions and prophecies and et cetera. What are you going to be tempted to do? Yeah.
2: Make stuff up, pretend, yeah. put on a show. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I think one, one of the books that I read on this years ago it kind of brings these, you know, revivalistic culture versus whatever we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. It, it's a collision of these two cultures. It's a short book, but definitely recommend it. It was Kevin DeYoung, and it was called Just Do Something. Mm-hmm. So this especially comes up with the will of God a stuff. great book. And um, so Kevin was talking about all these kids. I think he was near Michigan State at the time. All these kids that would come to church, and they're like, what's the will of God for my life? Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, they're looking for a liver shiver. They're yeah. looking for this experience. They open the Bible. And they're calling,
0: like, like a deep calling. Yeah, Well God. I've been having uh, dreams. The still small whisper. I, you know, I turned to Esther and it said, for such a
2: time as this.
0: And, and I, this I knew the time. Yeah. that I was
1: to
2: dump her. I need to go. And I knew back. that I was I to Europe. dump her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in, in the book, he compares that to kind of the traditional reformed view of like, how do you make a decision? But again, it's really this revivalistic versus stable, reformed, historical, covenantal view of life coming together. One of the things he points out is he compares those young people doing that to his grandfather. And he's, you know, Dutch reformed people in Michigan. He mm-hmm. said, look, they literally, they were like, well, where can I get a job? And so that's where I'm going to work. Mm-hmm. There was not this agonizing over, well, what is my emotional Their state? Destiny. Yeah, what's my destiny? <laughs> um, they were like, well, this woman was a friend of mine and she wasn't dating anyone. So I dated her and I liked her. So I married her. And that was it. And that was it. And what you find is that was actually far more stable. Yeah. Though less emotionally exhilarating. So getting really practical,
1: what we're talking about over against revivalistic emotional instability is that a true Christendom that's durable and lasting is going to, like we've been saying the whole time, it's going to be built on men and women who are mastered by the spirit of God who are just godly Christians living as godly Christians in the vocations and duties that God has given them. And so what you're describing is actually, I think, really practically helpful is that when you're thinking about, okay, how can I, how can I walk in alignment with this? And basically what you're describing is saying, well, you start with your duties.
2: You start with your duties from how God created you. Yeah. Start with general principles. Yeah. This is actually an old Martin Lloyd-Jones. He would always say this as a doctor start with the general. Okay. I know as a man, I'm called to do X, Y, and Z in scripture. That much is clear, right? Cause we always want to start with the like hyper-specific. Yeah. Does, with, is the will of God to be in the military or in a special branch of the military? Yeah. Or should
1: I take the, take the job with Amazon or should I, you know, go be a grocery clerk? Or-
2: yeah. And ultimately the things that God has made clear is right. As a man, we, we talk about it all the time, but you're to be a provider and a protector. Can yeah. you do that? Wherever, you know, what does God say? You know, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Yeah. So can you find a job and can you do that job with all your might? That's the question. Yeah. And will this job provide for your duties, for you to fulfill your duties? If so,
1: well, then great. Start there and maybe you'll find something better and maybe you'll plan, you'll think strategically and you'll get the next thing, but So much of our Christian culture is rooted in this kind of mystical spiritual emotionalism where it uses your emotions as sort of like the weather vane that point you. And the problem with that is that um, that's not what God designed our emotions to be and do.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because we've said before that culture, the stream flows out of the the church, right? Mm -hmm. And you can tell downstream, even in the world, the way that they act, what's coming out of the pulpits. And so... It should be of no surprise to us that within the mega church or the mainstream Christianity sort of sort of culture that you see similarities with the the secular world, in which they will try to have some sort of experience to uh, bring up feelings of, of um, virtue or of purity, and and you see these overt displays, whether it's on social media or in person, with. I don't know, say like COVID and wearing a mask or having Ukraine and your the Ukraine flag in your 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 social media page or something like that. And so you can see all these virtues signaling throughout all of the culture because of the same sorts of things that the church has been discipling people over a long time. Is instead of doing something productive in your duties, is that you're always chasing the next emotional high to feel like you're doing something for the greater good. And so you can even see that seeping into the, to the church culture today. Yeah. And they are forgetting their duties. And so you, that's why they swing wildly from one thing to the next.
2: I was going to say, I think another fundamental principle that, that I would kind of use to underpin all of this is uh, Matthew 28, right? In the Great Commission, we want to teach them all that Jesus commanded. And I had an Old Testament professor say this and he said, no, pause, don't just read over that, but pause and think about this for a minute. How long would it take you to teach someone and to obey it all that Jesus commanded. We're talking about lifetime work, right? Yeah. You're, you're talking about stuff that's going to take a lifetime. So then I want to apply that Dan to this situation on politics. It's really easy to slap a Ukraine or France or whatever the country of the moment is slap a profile, you know, a little image on there. I support the current, thing. I support whatever the current thing is, but you know, what's really hard is to like read Samuel Rutherford on politics, government, king, and the law of God. (laughs) That's, you know, that is going to take a long time. You're not going to arrive at a political position overnight. But I think where we are culturally is we have people who've been catechized by the culture. Like Pavlov's dog, you just shake the bell and they're like, okay, we'll do whatever they just told us to respond to. And what we're actually saying is we want to be guided by principle, not emotion. Fundamentally, Um, I would say that emotions are as, check engine lights, indicators on the dash, they're Mm -hmm. helpful, but they're not good when they're a compass. Yeah. They're not good when they're the directions. Yeah. And so you don't want to steer your life based on your emotions. But again, it gets back to this whole thing of, if we want to dig into subjects, all the world, for Christ, you you want to dig into these subjects, political and otherwise, it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of reading, a lot of study, a lot of conversation. And when you've been trained by you know, instead of being trained by your duties
1: and the word of God and all that Christ commanded. So, so what has Christ commanded me to be and do as a man, a husband, a father, a churchman? What has God commanded, you know, a lady to do as a woman, a mother, maybe a wife, you know, a a, a worker at home, all of these things, you know, instead of being trained by our duties, plus the scriptures, aiming for long-term plotting stability in that, We've been trained by emotionalism, so let's make decisions based on emotionalism and let's make the, the target that we're aiming for this spectacular, big, spectacular, radical things for Jesus. And that's what spiritual health looks like. You know, this is why you see, um, I remember some, some years back, there was a, a young lady in the church and she was coming out of high school, going in her, you know, adult years, just right on the cusp there. And uh, it was like, the thing that she was convinced she needed to do was find the mission field where she could go. Was it YWAM or was it this thing or was it that thing? And I remember that. Or
2: a household.
1: Yeah. And the pastors (laughs) were like, I just remember as we were counseling the father and, and and like trying to, trying to point the ship, but knowing that we're not going to make the decision for her and for, for the family. It's like, what about just stable, steadfast pursuing of things like, well, maybe being a wife and being a mother and, Maybe what about that? It's just not flashy enough. But it's not, it's not as
2: flashy as going overseas on the missions field and, and that sort of thing. Well, think about the language even, right? So David Platt, that whole movement, radical. Yeah. Um, even uh, Mark Driscoll, I never really liked the language, but they're like, be a rebel for God. Mm-hmm. And, and I get where he was going with it, but this, this whole language of rebellion and radical. Yeah. And realistically, what we're saying is faithful and plotting.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and a lot of what we've been captured by and wh- where we see a lot of fruit in, in our church and just through our, our ministries and is that part of the issue has been the framing of the Missio Day, the yeah. framing of, yeah. of the vision for Christianity and for even the individual. What do you exist to do? And so when we tell women, you know what you should do? You should be workers at home. Mm-hmm. That sounds terrible to a lot of it's women. Boring. It sounds really boring. It's a lot better to climb the corporate ladder to, you know, to make the next big sale or to do whatever the heck it is you want to yep. do. Yeah. And it sounds inglorious to stay at home and cook dinner, but, but it's all in the framing of the vision. You are made for a purpose. And, and I know we'll get really practical about this, but the fact that women, you stay home, you have babies, you can create eternal beings. They have eternal souls. You make life in your body and then you sustain life with your body. And that eternal soul will go on. Obviously it's eternal. It will live forever. And your children and your grandchildren and your great, great grandchildren will, and your descendants will fill the land. I mean, if God causes you to prosper, you know, God bless you. That's the mission. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so this is why it's so attractive, right? And this is, this is to, to the eternal creature is because you can outlast your own life. Yeah. And it's, it's ultimately not for your own glory.
1: So it's like revivalistic culture. It uses a truth to mislead. Yeah. The truth is that you should want to be a part of something glorious and radically glorious. You should actually want to be participating in something that is in the aggregate, not mundane at all. It's glorious but then it uses that to say, and so you're every Sunday at church and every worship experience and every you know, devotional time and every day should be marked by radical emotional highs and it should be marked by, and what that actually produces, is it, it's, it's actually the, the spiritual cultural equivalent of a meth addict, right? Or a heroin addict. Yeah. You're always looking for the next They're high. artificially flooding their brain with pleasure chemicals and and then living for that as if that and it just it ups your level of normal and so no wonder we're just depressed and feel like we're not yeah, getting and anything the, done. Yeah, it's
2: the it's the complete opposite of stability. Complete opposite. Right? Those yeah. people, you're you know, and, and I've been that person at least in the spiritual revivalistic sense. Pardon the interruption
1: here, but I have some great news for you. If you like high-quality Christian media, like the King's Hall podcast, of course, then we would invite you to help us continue to make this show possible. You can support the show at kingshall.org. We've got a Patreon account. We've got also a store now where you can buy some awesome Season 1 Boniface-themed merch. You can get a Boniface mug, a Boniface T-shirt where he's chopping down a tree, which for some reason is rainbow colored. I'll have to ask why our designer decided to, to do that. I'm, I'm kind of confused about the color choice there. Um, also, if you jump on our Patreon and support us there, you get access to uh, every week an entirely... Patreon exclusive show called after hours where we talk about all sorts of things in fact in an upcoming after hours episode we're going to discuss why we even use a company like patreon to help support the show when they're out there canceling creators and seems like we'd be the kind of creators that they would love to cancel and there is a very strategic reason why we do that so sign up for patreon
2: check it out there and you can learn more but with that said back to the show I was just thinking about this though, as we were talking about it, Dan, you were talking about this. I think fundamentally when we have collision, but between like Brian and Twitter, particularly Brian and Christian Twitter, and even a lot yeah. of the stuff I say in Christian Twitter, what I think it's really happening is it's this revivalistic faith versus reform sound historical things. Like again, you can think of like the household versus, you know, what whatever the thing in the moment in Christianity is novel, new and sexy. Yeah. Right. Because it, what, what are we saying that really ticks people off? Put some clothes on and be a mom and be faithful. <laughs> That's good. That's What's, really not a yeah. sexy thing.
1: Yeah. In today's culture. And, and so r- wrapping up this first section here, cause we're, we're starting to overlap with some of the things that we need to discuss in the next headings here. But when we're, when we're talking about, okay, anti-revivalist culture, anti-emotional instability, we're talking about, Men who are emotionally stable, they understand their duties and they seek to obey God in the duties that God has given them Mm. in a stable, plodding way. And so, think about some practical ways, men, that you could fight against this emotionalistic, do great things kind of mentality. A lot of you guys jump from job to job way too quick. You're like thinking that the next job is going to be the answer or the next move or or sometimes even like oh if i could just move to this place to be a part of this church or if i could just go do this thing and it's like before you hastily jump from thing to thing make sure that you are stable right make sure that you are pursuing your duties and then if you need to move or if you need to make a change in order to pursue long-term fruitful stability and obedience to your duties then do that but make sure that it's not a longing to be radical or a longing to be you know like do something glorious for the kingdom make sure that you're not you know actually still walking in the vestiges of the ways that we've all been discipled by this revivalistic thinking and same ladies same for you i think lots of women again they they you know young ladies come up out of high school and they think oh, i need to go do something big for the kingdom and it's like well what if the big thing that you're supposed to do is to be a small insignificant part little yeast cell in this whole great grand story that god is telling and what if the whole story is glorious But our glorious part of it is just going to probably be pretty mundane a lot of the time.
2: Yeah, and what if Mother Teresa was right? She said, "If you want to change the world, go home and love your family." Um, I think she was right. Um, And and it's funny because when you say that, a lot of you know women are kind of like it's kind of like deflating, Mm -hmm. like oh yeah, I guess that's what we're gonna go do. Yeah, it's like am I am I saying like oh I just want to
1: have these really good emotional spiritual times with God and yet I'm short with my kids.
0: Yeah, I mean usually the 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 work that's most worth doing is not great in the moment i mean the guys we we've talked about that build cathedrals the work stinks oh yeah stonework stinks i've never done it but i bet it stinks anyway (laughs) i mean rocks are heavy yeah kids they're not (laughs) malleable. i have so many kids at home right now they're so little and it's really hard (laughs) yeah my poor wife man she needs all the help she can get it's really hard it's it's Kind of hard. And you yeah. have moments that are great.
1: Yeah. It's ditch digging work a lot of time.
0: But what you have to do is look beyond the moment. You have to look beyond the moment at, at the actual work that you're doing.
1: Yeah. Look at what you're a part of and what it's contributing
0: to. Yeah. So, so making meals, uh, going to a job that you don't really like, you know, doing work that you don't think is that important in the moment, it's not satisfying. But like you said, Brian, what if you're just, what if you're just that yeast cell mm-hmm. and your job is to do what you're supposed to do, your duties, to the best of your ability, to the glory of God, and to become really good at what you do. Even yeah. if it's, man, you're, you're doing data entry. You're going to be the best dang data entryist <laughs> that's ever existed. Yeah. You will not stand before obscure men. You'll stand before kings. Yeah. yeah. And ultimately. You'll be entering their data.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the data of kings. Data of kings. You know, uh,
0: no, you're gonna stand before the King of Kings one day. That's right. And, and and so it's all about beyond the moment. Yeah. Whereas revivalism is in the moment. Mm-hmm. It's in the moment. What am I experiencing? What yeah. am I feeling? Mm. And there are guys, you know, I think we've all
1: seen this. Um, particular and I think even our tribes can tend to produce this kind of guy. This is why I'm specifically pointing at this, you know, throwing a rock at this, I think it's an idol. Um, that's related to this revivalistic, I'm going to do something big, kind of emotionalistic thinking. It's guys that they're not doing a great job with their basic duties. Like a man who doesn't provide for his family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, literally a verse in the Bible, according harsh, to Paul. Man. Yeah, it's harsh in their vibe. Oof. And then they're like, yeah, but Tell I'm going them. to go to seminary. I should go to seminary. I should, you know what? I should spend $75 this week on new theology
2: books to not read. What's funny, Brian, is that's actually what I did. <laughs> I'm describing for Ew. past Eric. I'm sorry, Eric. No, it really is. I mean, I, I would, I look back on that time period and I think, man, that was so foolish. Mm. And just not having, you know, people around you. Know, I read Don't Waste Your Life and went to seminary yeah. at, you know, 19 years old and was like, I'm going to be a pastor at 22 and this will be great. Is that a bad idea, being a pastor um, at 22? Yeah, I typically uh, believe that elders should be a little elder. I should, um I need to call my past.
1: selves. we both need to call <laughs> our past selves. No, yeah, this is and, uh this is so that's so true.
2: And God's gracious, uh, the other thing I wanted to speak to though, um you were talking about, you know, making lots of life transitions. Yeah. I look back at my life, uh, especially in the 20s, uh, but 20s through mid 30s. And one of the things I would say is a lot of I didn't realize this for a long time. It it was much later that I started reading up on what was going on in job markets and what was going on in Uh, corporate America and understanding like I'm actually not the anomaly that people want to move every two and a half years. And it's not even the want to it's that's what corporate life is like now. Um, That's the average job to to move up to advance. You have to, um, you have to move jobs. What, what I would say though, if I could go back to 20 is in order to be stable, you have to have ground that is stable. Yeah. So the thing is, I've looked back on it and I said, you know, what's interesting is the jobs are not stable. But what is stable is finding a church, finding a community, burning the boats, being there, planting your flags, planting your roots deep. Yeah. And then saying, you know what? No matter what happens, I can find work. I'm going to do my duties here. Yes. And so I would say for us, like uh, our family, we, we bounced around for a long time and, and I didn't understand it. And then, of course, we came here and um, it, it sounds kind of cliche. But I think in coming here, it was like, yeah, you have to have the kind of community that roots you. Yeah. And then literally that, that is what is providing the bedrock of stability for the rest of your life. So I think it really is a priority issue. Yeah. And again, as I was going through those decisions, I was talking with Dan and I was like, I don't know what, I, cause my, that was my thinking. I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do in the next three years. Mm-hmm. And Dan was like, well, what are you doing in the next 50, hundred years? Right. Like think different. Yep. So uh, th- I think that's one way that you can be more stable too. Yeah. Think about 50, hundred years
1: and then you're going to have your duties that you need to do today. Mm-hmm. Like you got to feed your family today, but make sure that you're actually also thinking about what you, your duties to your family are for the next 50 years and hundred years.
2: And where can you do that? Church community, brothers, yeah. gang of men. If you can't do that where you're at.
1: Then we're not saying just stay where you are. Don't don't ever move. Don't you know? Just be stable. So don't move. That's not what we're saying. Sometimes stability requires radical, near term
2: action for the sake of long term stability. Yeah, you have to look at the soil. Yeah, and because I and I, I bring it up because I hear this from a lot of guys where it's like, well, you know, we've been in this community forever, and my wife's parents are here, or, or you know, my husband's parents are here, and uh, the church is really bad. But you know, we're just hoping for reform. Yeah, (laughs) keep hoping. And it's like, you've been there 15 years. You haven't seen reform. Um, What are there there any signs that reform would come? (laughs) No, the pastor hates us. So do the elders. And uh, yeah, this is where we're at. And so, yeah, I think for that guy to find stability, he might actually have to. He he might have to realize he doesn't have it where he's at. Right. And then and then and at that point, then you're thinking through, Okay, well, our job stability. I would answer no, typically. Mm hmm. Okay, so if that's not stability, what is? Yeah, that's right. The job church, is not the stability. Church, community, you know, I would argue like Christian education of some form. Yeah. Support there. And then you can start branching out from there. And what happens when you have that, when you actually have that Christian community,
1: is that just like a plant that has really good soil mm-hmm. and is in a really good ecosystem that's functioning with, with the whole environment, vertically, horizontally integrated, is that you are more fruitful. And you start, like the thing is, if you get to a really good church community, a really good Christian community like this, your vocation may very well change for the better just because of the connections that you make through the church, where all of a sudden you're like, and, and even like the, the, the music that I do, I wouldn't have done it without Dan. I wouldn't be doing, I wouldn't be doing, and now this is like a, a thing that I actually do devote real time to because it's actually like a, a, a not a, a side hustle, but it's, you know, it's, it's I'm making productive property songs that I can put out and, and if people still listen to them, maybe one or two of them in 50 years, I'll be able to say, yeah. here, kids, here's a song. You own the royalty rights to it, that kind of thing. I wouldn't be doing that if Dan hadn't walked in the office and been like, hey, that's not, that's not a bad setting of Psalm 100. You should do that, right? So it's, it, you, don't know, you just don't know the things that are going to happen in terms of long-term growth and the direction that God will mold you if you're just lone rangering it somewhere. It's really hard to be stable as a lone ranger.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the things that revivalism has produced is radical individualism. Yes. Yeah. And so every man is his own island. He is looking for his experience, his... He's his own barometer. Yeah, he's his own man. Yeah, I, I know that's a whole nother rabbit trail, but but when you find that sort of community, one of the, one of the duties of men is to love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a community that has fertile ground, you have like-minded people that are mm-hmm rowing in the same direction and you love your people, it creates a stability.
2: Yes, it really does. Because
0: then there are men in our church who are thinking, what would it look like to buy a city block in Ogden? How could it, how could we provide housing for Christian brothers and sisters so that they could actually live here? Yeah. And and, and, and they're
1: actually already afford to live. They've here. started, <laughs>
0: they, and they've already started. Yeah, it's yeah, not even just like a thought. Started, or, but they're they're investing their time and their energy and their resources, lots of money, lots of time, into building something. Not just for themselves, but and in, in some cases, not even for their only for their generations, but also for the community. And so they're thinking community minded, mm-hmm. and, and and for these guys, they're producing a a ton of fruit. And what it does is it raises the level, like you said, yeah. of the people around you because they see activity happening. Yeah. You're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. There's a lot of movement over here. What's going on? Holy smokes. I want to do that too. Yeah. Or how can I help? Or, Hey, yeah. Like, uh, you know, you're sitting around and you're not working. Would you like to work? Cause you yeah. seem like a capable guy. I mean, there's yeah. so many opportunities.
1: It, it's like this picture, picture you, you know, you decide that you want to do something great. And and the great thing you're going to do, let's say you're living in 1400 Spain and you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go discover new worlds. So you hop in a canoe and you start paddling your way out across the ocean and, and, and the waves are lapping against you and you feel the wind blowing and you're like, this is glorious. Look, I'm in my canoe. I'm making good ground three, four miles an hour. You start doing the math. You're like, I'm going to, I don't know where I'm going to go, but I'm going to get somewhere good pretty quick. And then, you know, about 12 hours into the thing, you start realizing that you've made a very poor decision. And, praise God, though, you see approaching you from behind a great galleon. Is that what they're called? Galleons? A galley. Galley? Sure. The big ship? Isn't it a galleon? A Spanish galleon? Sure. Look it up. Yeah, it. Spanish We're gonna galleon. Go with that. Yeah. A great sailing a galley ship. Is in, that's where I would be. The galleys in the that's, that's the... that's where the food I'd is. Be. That's right. Amen. Yes. You know, clinking glasses. Amen. And you see it approaching you and the light's failing and you wave your hands and they come and they, they pull your sorry butt into the big Spanish galleon.
2: And it is a galleon, by the way. They're thank large, you. multi-deck sailing ships first used by the European states from 16th to 18th centuries. Wow, so I'm anachronistic in my time frame, but let's just
1: go with it. And they pull you up into it and you say, wow, guys, thank you. Where are you going? And you see this deck. It's full of sailors. There's like 60 guys up here making this big ship go and they're like, oh, we're we're going on a quest of discovery for the requesting for the new world. And you're like, can, can I be in on this? And that's what it's like. It's when you're, if you're just saying, I'm going to go do something great for Christendom. And it's just you, you're a guy in a canoe trying to get across the ocean. But if you've got a church, even if it's a hundred people, you could actually do it. Like you, you, you might get there.
0: I feel like that whole story was just for sound effects. No, 100%. yeah, so you can sound engineer no. it. Yeah, I, so also can, say, I could hear the gulls and the can waves can and can everything you? like that. and I could hear it too. Yeah, okay, I'll let you talk. But I
2: the illustration <laughs> was apt. I was gonna say, totally worth it, though. Yeah, absolutely, it was good. an apt it was good. illustration. No, it's
0: it's so so many decisions. Brian and Brian and I and the elders of the church and a, a bunch of other people have had to make decisions, and we're like, if we make this decision, if we continue to reform the church, we're going to lose. People. I mean, that's just, there's a cost to leading and making changes. And ultimately we came down to like, we're convinced these are the right decisions. And if we just had 10 families, Mm -hmm. if we had 10 families, 10 men that are in and they're going to put their hands to the plow and we're all going to go the same direction, man, we could gain so much ground. Oh yeah. All it would take is 10 men. So it doesn't even have to be a huge, you know, everybody is attracted to these to these places like, like Moscow or, or, or wherever, yeah, you know, like right. and in a, in a lot of ways uh, I've heard, uh, I've heard this illustration before in, um, in some places you keep your cattle penned with fencing, but in areas like West Texas, they have thousands of acres. And so they have a well, a watering tank and they keep the cattle close because there's the water. They have to go yeah. to water. Yeah. And, and, and in this time that we live in, there are places throughout the U S that are like these watering holes right? And so people keep going to these places. And the, th- the fact of the matter is, uh, and I think that's great, but you don't have to go to the biggest place in order to have an effect or to find a community. Just 10 men can be yeah. all the difference.
2: Yeah. And I think the other thing is, um, is we're talking about stability, uh, uh, plugging in. I think for a lot of guys, I've talked to them. I was this guy for a long time, like you see these communities from afar, you think, okay, it's too good to be true. Um, you know, it can't possibly be that good. Um, and so literally for 15 years, we, we did the Lone Ranger. Yeah. Sort of. I mean, we were part of churches and, you know, um, but to, to find like what we're describing in this podcast, it's actually really hard, right? There's not many churches. Um, we were talking to a brother the other day who said maybe 50 good churches, like really good churches in America. There's a lot of big churches. Yeah. But how many churches are actually a, a part of this legacy building historical uh, church? And I think the answer is not many. But but the other thing that I would say to it is, you know, like for us coming here, we, we literally had, you know, I think I, I was, you know, I was baptized as infant, but really came to like faithful Christianity 2006, somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, From that point till we moved here, pretty much every church was a disaster of some sort. Ah, and I talked to other people, and I think they've experienced similar things. And so then you get this sour taste in your mouth where you think it's just not possible. There's no good churches. Yeah, you get really cynical. Um, And then we moved here, and I was like, okay, no, it actually exists. So I think part of it is hope for people. Yeah. Um. You know, we talk about in post mill theology, people will say, well, that's great in theory, Mm -hmm. but I think. People just need to experience that it is real. Mm-hmm. Um, there are men pushing the plow forward, making progress. Yeah. Not everybody's losing right now.
1: That's right. And it takes a lot of, like, people also don't realize that it takes, the cynics, you know, might come to a place like Ogden and say, and realize pretty quick that we're not there yet. Not perfect. They'll start meeting people. They're like, well, you're not finished. You're not a finished product yet. You don't agree with me on every single thing. You're not, you know, that person, wow, they did something I don't like. I don't think, you know, I... I saw, I heard a podcast that said that families should do this for family worship and that family. Wow. I don't even think they're doing that at all. And wow, they're credo Baptists over there. And oh, he's a Pado Baptist. And all of a sudden it's like, if you want to find something to fuss about, you, you can fuss about it. People don't realize though, that the best communities are just boringly ordinary, but what makes them glorious is this shared vision and mission where it's like each one of us knows that we're not significant. <laughs> but we know that together, if we actually band together and aim for this just mere Christendom kind of thing, God might actually do something glorious in our city or in our place over the next hundred years. And, and, and what it's going to take along the way, it's like we just had a meeting this morning, for, you know, an elders meeting early this morning, and we're talking about all these problems in the church and discipline and you know we got to reach out to that person and we got to like counsel that person and we got to pull that person back and we got to get rid of that i mean that guy needs to he someone needs to thump him with the, their shepherd staff and it's like this is every month at refuge church this is every month at our church here we're doing that kind of stuff and if you were here you you'd understand that but the secret sauce is this new Christendom is going to be built on 40,000 year thinking conquest thinking but not like I'm going to be Caleb by myself charging the hill necessarily. But recognize that Caleb is like with the whole people that are crossing over into the land. Yeah, including his children. It's going to be generations. So what revivalism has done, this is, this is really, we've been already talking about that second heading a lot. Let me, let me r- remind you of what that second heading was. And we'll continue the conversation here that revivalism and decisionism produces a culture and just demonstrably has produced a culture of apocalyptic thinking and a narrative of cultural decline. And so against that, the new Christendom is going to be built on 40,000 year thinking and conquest thinking. So when you think about that Centralia mine fire, this is another image that I get in my head when I think about what revivalism has produced in culture. It's like that. And specifically, it's like this great massive coal seam burning under your Christendom (laughs) because The narrative is decline. The narrative is that the world is just going to burn down. And then we're going to be like on a rooftop. We're going to be like the Vietnam rooftop and the Apache helicopter is going to be the rapture. It's just going to like pull us out (laughs) while the world just finishes its final
2: collapse. Well, even, even the non-dispies, right? Dispensationalism is obviously like, you know, Jesus come back tomorrow. Uh, Why have kids? It it depends which brand, right? But yeah. um, Yeah. All milk. Yeah, on-mill, pre-mill. But here's the real question to me. So I'm almost 40 years old. In my lifetime, I can never remember anyone outside of Moscow, in my experience, in the Christian camp, who is optimistic about the culture, about Christianity, about the church. Yeah, like, oh, things are going to be great. Everybody. Like, you don't even know. Yeah, from day one of my existence, people are like, it's getting worse. We're going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, you name it, hell in a handbasket theology has dominated the church culture. It's always, we're losing. So in in the midst of that sort of thing, I think, yeah, naturally you're not going to have people who are like, oh, let's build a 40,000 year plan. If you think you're losing, why would you? Some of it, it's like, you, you know, imagine a distiller making a barrel of whiskey
1: and he's putting the, you know, just fresh spirit into the barrel. And he's filling the thing up. And if someone was like, that whiskey's not very good yet. And he's like, I know. Yeah, just throw it out. <laughs> of course, it's not good. <laughs> oh, that was a terrible, terrible yeah, just, Scottish just accent. It. Yeah, I'm not good at that accent. And, and he's like, well, just wait. Like, you guys, we're in early church history still. I'm convinced. Like, we're still in early church history here. We're the, like, maybe the whiskey's just starting to take on a little bit of color from the, from the freshly charred oak barrel that it went into. Yeah, taste it and, you know, drop a little, what's the, what's the little thing that they use to pull out? They use the dropper to pull out glasses as if you've ever seen a master distiller go through, he's going through the warehouse of barrels, various ages that are, they've been aging for, you know, various number of years, different barrels, different oak, different, different, uh, batches. So they're all different. And he's pulling out just an ounce or two at a time. Actually, they're pretty big pours. That guy must be like wasted all the time. But, you know, and they're trying it like, no, this one's not ready. This one's not ready. And I just picture the Lord Jesus doing that with his church. You know, where we're this big barrel that's just... And, and he's like, oh, it's, got, it's getting some color on it now. And we're the equivalent of like the Octomore 5, five year. It's been in for a minute, although that one was finished. So that's a bad example. Oh man, Octomor is good. It's so good. Mm. You know, but that to me is like... <laughs> We the very opening of the first episode of the king's hall podcast We talked about understanding where you are in the story The pro, one of the main problems with revivalism. I think we agree on this and I want to hear what you guys think but Is that the story that it's telling? Is that it's that you're at the vietnam war the very end? We've got maybe 15 minutes left of history at any given moment and everything's on fire and it's and that's proof that i'm Napalm. right By the way, yeah <laughs> And that's the thing. Anything bad is proof I'm right. And so I'm only going to focus on bad things. Do you know what you're not doing if you think you're in the last 10 minutes of the Vietnam War? You're not building a Christian hospital. You're not starting a Christian school. Why would you do that? The Viet Cong is like right outside the
2: gates. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. um, And this may be totally tangential, but it it got me thinking about what changed in the 20th century. Because for a long time, the church was post-mill. Yeah. And... um, I'm reading Pat Buchanan's book, uh, Churchill, Hitler, and the unnecessary war. And he makes a statement in that book that I combine with a couple other theological things I've heard about post mill where the post mill you know, non post mill guys who are evaluating post mill. Yeah. They say, well, look, world war two taught us that, you know, post mill can't possibly be true. I never understood that comment. And then I was reading Pat Buchanan and he says that world war one and two was in large part, the death of Western Christendom. Because you had all the, I mean, these guys were all related, and they're killing each other, slaughtering yeah. each other, 50, two to 50 million people in two wars. Professed Christians on both sides. Yeah, basically like white Western Christianity just m- slaughtering Absolutely each other destroying senselessly. Um, so I think that put a dent in it, and that is, I think that is heavily shaped, plus revivalism, has shaped people's view Absolutely. of the post-mill
0: yeah, and I think so. With revivalism, we got 15 minutes left to live. World War III is going to happen. That's that's. I mean, you hear Nuclear. this narrative. It's going to be yeah, we're going to nuked. You know, hopefully Israel is going to be okay, and you know, whatever. I don't know. Hopefully, Israel. What does this be <laughs> say? I don't. I don't know. Well,
1: the, the Antichrist I mean, makes a strong covenant with Israel, and then the, the second, the three and a half year mark, he breaks it, and then the second half of the Great Tribulation is marked by you know Israel's yeah, persecution. Yeah, I, anyway. I, I don't.
0: I mean, I don't know if you you recall from the last episode, but dispensationalist, premillennialism came about at the same time exactly as all of these other horrible movements, such as Mormonism yeah. and Seventh Day Adventists. It wasn't like on
2: that. day two of the creation. No, in fact, <laughs> no, it wasn't.
1: Let me interject my third heading because this is we're we're oh. literally just mud- my my outline was meaningless today, and that's fine. Like for this episode, you can't even but finish a thought. Or I'm anything. gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna let you finish your thought, Dan. Okay, but this is a perfect example of it that. Revivalism and decisionism is it has produced a culture of restorationism and novel theological
2: thinking. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's very deep. Very novel. Yeah. It's interesting. And Dan, I, I want you to continue. Yeah, once again, point here. In a moment, Eric will also After, you continue your thought. And then After I we will, both interrupt, you. yes. One interruption yeah, yeah, to set you up because I love you so much. We're queuing you so yeah. good we're, right we're now. We're just queuing you up.
0: Cueing queuing me for the thought that I don't really remember. <laughs> <laughs> but. It, but here's the difference. You were talking about how if you've got 15 minutes left.
2: Did you just interrupt me while I was interrupting was you? Interrupting I, you. I really wasn't paying if attention. If you've got 15 go. minutes left.
0: how do I feel like I've been bulldozed go. the whole episode. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Here dude. I am. I finally had a thought. King tall, okay. civil right, war. All right. All right. I'm going. I'm going. Okay, so you've got 15 <laughs> minutes left. You're not building schools. You're not building hospitals. You're not doing any of that stuff. And then you're like, okay, Mr. Grand Vision Post Mill. Let's see this beacon of hope Ogden Utah and you come to the city and it stinks. There are flags of the rainbow flags everywhere. Right across the street. Yeah, right across the street. I mean, in high defiance of the holy and living God, they are flying his symbol of anyway. Here we go. Buy my candle. So, and then you come into Refuge Church into the
1: sanctuary. <laughs> we sanctuary tell about that. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. All right. That's after, after hours. hours. Oh, after yes. hours. Okay.
0: If you want to hear about the candle.
1: Based. That I may or may not make and you get us canceled. You have to be
0: a patron to hear the it's after true. hours. And the candle, you guys. So you so come good. into the sanctuary of the somewhat derelict and somewhat beautiful Refuge Church building. Yeah. And you hear the music, and you're like, "Wow! I thought they were singing glorious four part songs." When we're learning them, we're learning them. the cacophony of children screaming. Sometimes outweighs whatever's being done in worship. You're like kneeling to confess, and you hear my kid crying. Where are the tenors? And they're not confessing; they're actually sinning during confession. You know, there's all these things going on, and you're like, "Wait a minute! This is the post mill hope." You know what's happening behind the scenes? of the small duties that are happening Sunday to Sunday every week is that in faithfulness, the people of God are coming together to worship the holy and living God, being made and knit together by eating the same food, producing children that love the Lord, have a sense of place, know their duties, know what they're for, and they will have children Lord willing in five generations. Ogden, Utah will actually be a beacon of hope, because there will be Christians here. There yeah. will be hundred thousand Christians here. Lord, willing. hundreds of thousands of Christians here, Lord willing, all because of the small things that we do week to week. That's the glorious mission, and it yeah. looks not glorious in the moment.
1: And you guys might be like, "You're deluded. That's not going to happen." Yes, here's I the am thing. deluded.
0: Here's the thing: I have hope. Here's the thing: the King of Kings is sitting at the right hand of God. Amen.
1: If we're wrong we're not going to be wrong about the whole story. We might be wrong about the next act in the, the current act of the, the next chapter in the book that yeah. we're in. Yeah. And Actually, maybe, you know, America falls as an empire and there's just like mass unrest for 600 years. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes God decides to write that into the history. It's like, maybe there won't be an Ogden, Utah in 200 years because of world war six. And we're like, we've only had two. It's like a farmer that plants in hope. Exactly. Sure. But, But what we're doing and what we're talking about is how every single generation of Christians ought to be thinking. Yes. They ought to be thinking, how can I disciple the nations right where I am? And hey, my father doesn't give me meaningless tasks that are impossible. He doesn't say go disciple the nations and then intend to just be like, oh, and by the way, you're gonna utterly fail and be frustrated I'm going to for your entire you at every attempt to yeah. obey me.
0: You're like, thanks, dad? I think. <laughs> it's like, no. Who comes ever you know, who gives every good and perfect gift? Yeah, oh, he's just he building like, his spiritual kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be really
1: oh, super spiritual. Don't get spiritual. Don't yeah, It's super gonna be really super spiritual. And uh oh yeah, but um you won't be able to see any of it like anywhere ever. But you'll be able to feel it if you emote your way towards it, spiritually speaking. It's like every generation, if we all lived this way and we all just said, what what furrow can I plow the next two feet of in my entire life? I'm going to be a small insignificant mayfly in the pursuit of this glorious thing that God is building. And that to me is like, what revivalism does is it makes every single Christian life, because it's restorationist and it's all about novelty, and big and glorious things in every single Christian life. It's like it makes every Christian life about what really the whole missio day should be. Where it's like, my life will be this glorious story where I do all these great, amazing things and I feel deep spiritual fervor at every moment of every day. And then it just sets literally everybody up for failure. Yeah. Because that's not we're very few people do the all that impressive things. The three of us. Very, you know, take the whole of Refuge Church, everybody here now, it's very unlikely that any of us will do something historically impressive, like vanishingly unlikely.
0: Yeah, there are hundreds of years of human history where there's like roughly nothing known. How
1: how many total names did you learn in, in your first, you know, 12 years of education? Like a couple hundred? I feel like you're forgetting Santa Baby, though. That actually might endure.
2: That
0: might actually that, endure. I don't even endure. know if I've watched the whole video, so I don't See, know.
1: See, Dan hasn't nice. even watched Santa
0: Fe <laughs> all the way through. <laughs> what? I watched part of it. It was funny.
2: My son, my oldest, my 14-year-old, actually, in St. Brennan's, wrote a similar... He said, well, you know, Brian did his, so I wrote this poem. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, none of it's repeatable.
1: Oh no! no I'm kidding. Kidding. I'm just,
2: I was just like, kidding. wow, we, we might need to do some discipline. We have something
0: confess on Sunday. It, it, yeah. Let <laughs> me say
2: this. It's definitely uh, in the realm of we'll get you canceled. Uh, uh, <laughs> one of the things, though, that I was thinking as you guys were talking about that, I, I think we have to fight against generational amnesia. I think we have to fight against the novelty rush of every year, new products, new everything. You know, there's, you know, think about Twitter. There's a new news cycle every five seconds on Twitter. Yeah, seriously. Like yesterday, I was like, get the jab or you're the devil. And, and then today still? I'm like,
0: Oh yeah. 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 But
2: today that was yesterday. Yesterday. Sorry. Yesterday. But today it's news. Ukraine and Zelensky is a hero. I don't even know who he is, but he's a hero and we should worship him. Yeah. I'm crane. We're crane. Ukraine. We're all crane. That's right. So one thing that I would say just very practically is, uh, be reading people. I think on the agriculture side, there's a lot of good people that you can read who actually still embody this mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of people like Alan Carlson, I think of Joel Salatin, Wendell Berry, C.R. Wiley, um, they capture a lot of this pietas uh, a godly piety that yeah. looks to the generations. But I also think about, about people like uh, David Chilton, uh, Andrew Sandlin, be thinking and reading as a way of thinking, but be reading and thinking in a generational way. And over time, what I found is you slowly start to see the world differently. Yeah. You got to train your mind for that. You start thinking of the world covenantally.
1: Yeah. And you start thinking of the world in historically rooted Catholicity. Yeah. Where you start, you know, when I say historically rooted Catholicity, I mean you start to see yourself as situated on some branch of this great tree that is the universal church. You start to see yourself as connected historically, that your roots go back all the way through the medieval church, through the early church, to the, to the apostles, to, you know, and obviously Christ is the vine. I mean, this metaphor is not perfect, but, but you, you start to see yourself connected to that. And in this long view, you start to see yourself covenantally, like covenantally meaning what is God's covenant? What is he doing? What has he said that he's going to do with this whole world? And how do I fit into it? Like, that's why at the beginning of this whole thing, again, we started with such um, emphasis on the story that God's telling. Because again, like so many of the things that will, any story that is not accurately situating ourselves in the story God is telling will ultimately produce a culture that fails. Mm revivalism fails because it sees itself as this restorationist like, oh, you know, if you look back in church history, even 10 minutes, everything was wrong. And now we've gotten to me in my crazy, historically novel doctrine that I received in a vision. Now, all of a sudden it's like, you see yourself as like a different tree from what the tree that God has planted in the story that he's telling. And it's like, any, any, any story that just doesn't properly situate yourself in the story that God's telling the culture that it makes is going to be terrible because God is actually telling a good story. Like this thing is actually a pretty dang good story that we're in. That's right. I never would have included the reformation. Like my story would have been much more linear, but, but then God was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have some popes and they're going to have like Mistresses,
0: like multiple popes at the same time. <laughs> like there's
1: gonna be three popes, three okay. popes. Someone's Lots gonna popes. be selling get I'm out of hell. I but a pope. People are gonna be selling get out of purgatory quicker uh, uh, coins or uh, tickets in order to uh, build houses for the worship of me. You know, and he's like, the story God's telling is really. I don't know where I'm going with this, but anyway, I th- I think the story that God's telling is fascinating. And like a lot of the problems that we have are when we start oversimplifying and telling these like restorationists, they always end up where like, we're the great white hope. We're the great hope that shows up and fixes everything.
0: And again, so I I want you to talk, um, men being made for glory, men and women being made for glory. And so it sounds like at some times we're disparaging against glory Mm, against those moments where you're like, you know, you, you just crave that, that glory that comes from the moment, yeah, and so are we disparaging of glory or for mo- men and women?
1: Yeah. Dan, that is a great, great question, and I, I absolutely see what you mean because it might sound like we're saying, "Don't be radical, don't do anything impressive, just do your be paperwork." Lame. Be, do your paperwork and cook. We literally yeah. talked about data entry, like that was oh, our man. obey God in your data entry. Dan, like before is a came. better example. <laughs> no, it's a good example actually, but, but here's here's the thing what you have to actually believe is that God in giving you the duties he gave you to walk in for your whole life, like these normal duties as a husband, a father, whatever you, whatever vocation you have, a mother, a wife, God in giving you those duties and telling you to obey him in them for your whole life, he knows what he's doing. He actually knows what he's doing. And God really is bending all of creation and this whole story towards glory. But what you'll find is that When you aim for shallow, quick glories, big, fast, and famous type glories, revivalistic, emotionalist type glories, me just manufacturing this great, magnificent, unique call of God on my life that nobody else has. And he told me in the watches of the night, you know, through my liver shivers, you know, what we're actually going to end up doing is creating a really lame, stupid story Mm. because we're just not God. Like we're not God. But if you just boringly fulfill your duties, man, man. God will actually do glorious things. God will do glorious things. He really, like, men, you are the glory of God. Women, you are the glory of man. You really should want glory. You should be pursuing it rightly in the glory of God in your life. But instead of wasting our time with this revivalist thinking that just manufactures fake glory, we ought to pursue the real authentic number, the real authentic number, which is obedience to the duties that God has given us, in the place that he's deployed us. And so to wrap it up, we say no to revivalist thinking. No, we say no. We say, get rid of that. Let's burn that shanty town to the ground. And instead of that, let's build historically rooted, plodding, long haul, conquest thinking, sober minded, stable, Christian Catholicity. Amen. 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 Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the King's Hall podcast. Remember that if you join our Patreon with every episode, we release an after-hours show that we record literally moments after recording the main episode, where we talk about related things, a little bit more informal, share toasts with one another. It is a great time, uh, and we would love to have you join. You can go to kingshall.org. We have links to all of the ways to support the show. Yes, you can send us Bitcoin, and we do HODL. So with that said and Alente, make hay slowly, and we will see you next time.